0: I hope we have a bunch more presidents that have 52 years of service, but that's not gonna happen. So we just kind of buried the letter and we went and bought this guy, I think a windmill. He was a farmer and that was his retirement gift.
1: From the University of Alabama's Cobras College Business, it's Bama Means Business. A podcast that reveals amazing stories from most people who both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens. On our show today, Dennis Shuler. This is the second part to our five-part series with Dennis, in which he chronicles his adventures in London, helping open a brand new office for Procter & Gamble and a lot of the trials and tribulations he faced. London? Way different offer. Right Way there. different offer. <clears throat> and it was awesome. Uh,
0: you know, I remember them calling me and they said, you know, we want to set you up for a go-look trip. I said, not necessary.
1: So it was like a tour trip, kind of, like to see where
0: you it. might move. Don't, don't need it. Just let me know when you need me, and we're, we'll be there. So I ended up going, I think it was on July 10th, 1992, flying in. And I literally got off the plane, and I met Martha miller Lumbera, who's the general manager of the business. And she said, get your wellies. And I said, what, what are wellies? Well, they're, you know, boots. Okay. Because we're going to go buy land. I said, what do you mean we're going to buy land? Well, the business you're joining, Health and Beauty Care, we're gonna we're gonna grow this thing exponentially faster. And Procter was kind of at that time a uh, more of a soap and paper company. We were gonna to start to get into beauty products, and we need to build a building emblematic of that. And that was one of the projects I worked on. Interesting,
1: fantastic. And uh, correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong about this assumption. A lot of people look at you know a common everyday use item like like soap, uh, like mm-hmm. those kind of products, and they don't give it a second thought. You know, I'll just buy mm-hmm. the name brand and then mm-hmm. you know use it every day until I run out. Mm-hmm. In working you know, inside of that kind of company, is it that simple, or is there a lot no, that goes into no. it?
0: No, I mean just the capital uh, that's required to make uh, baby diapers or toilet paper, for that matter. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars wow. in a machine.
1: Yeah, it's, it's impressive. And the, and the
0: corollary converting lines that go with it. So it's it's a big deal. You know, when we used to re, we call it replatforming baby okay. care, where you'd have to change out for new. Kind of new diaper that might be more absorbent that could run into hundreds of millions of capital expense. So you did it every little once in a while. We didn't do it every year. But P had kind of made its name. You know, it was it was formed in 1831, I think, and it was a soap and candle maker at the time. Okay. The Procter and gamble got together in the banks of the Ohio, and they created this business. And uh, it's it's it served itself well, but they wanted to get in the high higher-margin, higher-value products, and that led them to beauty. Right, And they bought a lot of small companies, Schulten, and, um, oh, there's three or four companies. Richards and Vicks was a big acquisition. They hadn't really integrated them yet, and that was my job when I went into the U.K. It was to integrate those acquisitions into the company, which formed yeah. the nucleus of what we now call beauty.
1: And when you're on the, like an acquisition team, mm-hmm. usually you're, you're looking at the books, you're making sure to run a whole profile of mm-hmm. the yeah. company. Did you serve as more of the analyzing the human talent, the, the resources that came in with it, or are you more general overall? It was general because the deals were already done. Okay. So
0: pre-deal stuff and due diligence already been done. This was more of how do you integrate the business into the existing operations? How do you retain the talent? And then okay. how do you grow it?
1: Yeah.
0: And so when I joined the business, Cole, I mean, don't hold me to these numbers, but I think the business was, I don't know, 400, 500 million. And when I left it in 2008, it was over $23 billion.
1: that's, that's Now, some of that, right a
0: lot of that was organic, but some, uh, you know, large chunk of it was acquisition. We bought Clairol. We bought Wella. We bought Gillette. Um, and that really changed the landscape. The face, no pun intended, of Procter & Gamble and Beauty. It was just phenomenal. Um but, you know, I, I think international assignments for the listeners, particularly students that might be listening, um, they're tremendous accelerator experiences because you're you're on your own in many regards. You have support. I mean, I don't want to mm-hmm. suggest that they drop me and they cut all the ties and say, fend for yourself. That wasn't it.
1: Have fun, Dennis. You're yeah, will have fun.
0: But, you know, you didn't have you didn't have the headquarters that you did in Cincinnati uh, that would be there as a resource you could call because you're five our time zone away. Yeah. So you learned how to do with less and you did more by yourself. So you grew exponentially faster as an executive, um, which was phenomenal for me. And you know, I can't, I, that six years that I spent in the UK uh, was probably the most growth I've had in my career. Um, now, in some aspect, I wouldn't want to repeat it because it was really high stress. I had a French boss who I ended up loving um, Michelle Lubeleau. But my first six months, when everything I gave him was, this is bullshit, Mr. Schuler, this is bullshit. And finally, one day I asked him, I said, you know, is there nothing I can do that ever pleases you? And he says, why, why, why do you ask, Mr. Schuler? I said, because every time I give you something, it's bullshit back. He goes, you do not, he says, you do not know the way of the Frenchman. This is how we emote. We say bullshit. I say bullshit when it's just me remarking on something that's not an evaluation. And after that, we just had this great relationship in that he died of cancer a few years ago, and I helped his wife with her with his pension. We just became really close friends. So you got to learn and understand different business models. You got to learn and understand, you know, different nationalities, different orientations about how do you lead others. And it was just so much fun. Now I travel like a madman, um, but the byproduct of that is... Um, I'm a British citizen. I have my British passport. As do my as my wife and my two kids. Both kids have worked overseas,
1: That's unencumbered very unique. by okay.
0: usual immigration stuff. So it really was great for the family as well.
1: And how did you actually enjoy physical London and Europe? What was the experience like for you, culture wise, trying to integrate it somewhat? Well, you know, if you think about it
0: for a minute, um, if you're here in Tuscaloosa, how long does it take to get to the West Coast? Probably a day. It's a day. In an hour, you're in, you know, a less than an hour flight, you're in Paris. Two hours, you're in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Two and a half hours, you're in Prague. Three and a half hours or so, you're in Moscow. So what Europe, uh, and I'm sure it's the same, well, it's less so in Asia because the distance, distance and legs are so long. But in Europe, within an hour, you could be in a completely different country, completely different culture, different mores. So... I tend to think of myself today, not, I'm sure my European friends would not agree with this, but I tend to find I'm more affiliate with Europeans than I do Americans. Americans tend to be a little, I call them the lower 48, particularly people that haven't haven't traveled a lot. Yeah. That they have this view of we're the best at everything and actually we're not. That other countries are pretty good at what they do and they have different ways of thinking about life and mm-hmm. That's very true. They
1: think of German engineering. They think of you know London finance, like all those big hubs exactly. that are all exactly very close, which allow them to work a lot yeah. more congruently overall. I mean, one of the more interesting
0: discussions I had was a few years ago with one of my friends, who's a Swede, uh, Liv Cardell, who owns her own consulting practice in Melmo, and we had a bottle of wine. When we were talking about tax rates. You know, their tax rate, I think, is sixty-five or seventy percent. Our marginal tax rate is you know thirty-six to forty percent. And I said, Liv, how do you stomach that? She goes, we, we see that as not a problem because the best and brightest go in the government. We're very egalitarian in our mindset. We believe in redistribution of wealth. Okay. We all win and we all have this kind of collaborative understanding of what, you know, what your neighbor needs is what I give. So it's kind of a give and take and it's spawned for a small country, a lot of innovation.
1: It's very, which kind it's of stopped proven. me in the
0: tracks because you know you come up in America and you go like god i want to pay taxes and anything the government does is usually you know not good and in sweden it's quite the opposite which is the best and brightest go in the government roles because that's the most efficient vehicle for distributing wealth never completely different yeah. um i don't know if that's true or not you know it, frankly but that was her belief and you know and she's she's very articulate and very understanding of it so you know it was again an eye-opener to me in terms of what different business theories different cultures bring to the table that create businesses is not one size fits all like Mm. um some people might think
1: so you were in london uh for about six years, I believe, six and a half, maybe.
0: Yeah, it was six years. I, my first three years, coal was in London. Actually, I lived outside of London to be okay. technical. I was in a little town called Sunningdale. It was about a 20-minute ride into the city. We had a headquarters group and an R&D center out there. My last three years, I took the total UK business, so I commuted between London and Newcastle. Okay. And it. And if you know anything about England, the north of England is very different than than the south. South dominated by London, finance, high finance. I mean, the north was coal mining, shipbuilding, steelmaking. Mm-hmm. And it really suffered during the Thatcher years when a lot of coal mines were, were closed and a lot of the steelmaking went away. Uh, I wouldn't call it impoverished, but much less opportunity. Mm-hmm. But beautiful country. I mean, spectacular country. i have I mean, seen pictures online. I'm being like, this I mean, is...
1: The same yeah. country as London. Because London, you think, huge that's exactly metropolitan, right. like, all built out. You go north and you have, like you said, the beautiful scenery.
0: That's exactly
1: it. Um, I
0: would fly into the airport, and I'd stay at a little hotel in Mormoth, which is 20 minutes from the airport. And I used to sit out in the back of the, the little garden thing where you could eat. And then in the summer, you could just sit out there, and there was no noise. There was no light pollution. It was just darkness. And mm-hmm. you say, Wow. This is what England was like two or three or four centuries ago. It's still here, and it's just uh, it's just fantastic. Now, P had a business that was the laundry and cleaning business, and that was a machine and a couple of things. They had great market share, but more importantly, they had it was a talent machine. Many of the top leaders came through that business because it was uh, big. I think it was the second most profitable unit in P uh, lineup. But it was a proving ground um, that executives would go through, and it was really a well, well-run organization. Um, a little stiff upper lip for me, you know, the classic American wants to come and change things. But on retrospect, looking back on it, you know, a lot of the things they were doing were, were the right things to do to grow their talent. So you had this. Uh, so what I had was I had this upstart business down in the south called Beauty, and this very mature business called Laundry and Cleaning in the north. And it was so different between the two, both physically, geography-wise, and also business tenor and tone was completely different. We were embryonic at beauty. We were just starting out. We were just trying to get uh, our business established. And this lawn and cleaning business had been around, around for 50, 60, 70 years and was very mature with fantastic leaders. So it was a really nice juxtaposition for me to kind of manage. And again, that was another accelerator experience, which was learning about what mature organizations do well, and also what mature organizations can sometimes get themselves
1: in trouble for when they get too steeped in their own wool. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I think I heard of this story, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there was an employee that worked and <coughs> retired from uh, P&G. It was something like 58 years, I want to say. Worked that the was 50-some 50,
0: 50 years, yeah. 50-some
1: years. Yeah. Can you, do you mind sharing that story, like what happened in your position?
0: <laughs> it was... Uh, uh, my PNG friends are going to kill me for the story. Um, there was a, there was an, I to be honest, I can't remember whether it was somebody in the UK that retired or an American that retired. I can't remember now. Um, the, the fog comes in from time.
1: Exactly.
0: But I think the, I think the issue was this guy had had 52 years of the company. So I sent a note to the U S saying, Hey, we'd like to do something different outside the norm. You know, 52 years is 52 years. Let's do something outside the norm. I get this letter back from the HR group that said, um, we've we've looked at your request, and we respectfully turn it down because it will set a precedent. Okay. So I write back and I go, how in the hell is there going to be – I hope we have a bunch more precedents that have 52 years of service, but that's not going to happen. So we just kind of buried the letter, and we went and bought this guy, I think, a windmill. He was a farmer. Okay. And that was his retirement gift. That's a pretty unique retirement <laughs> gift. i never it heard of that. Fun. We did a lot of uh, interesting things that, um, you know, I, and I think, you know, listen, you're working in a company of, uh, at the time, P&G was probably 80 or 90,000 people. So I get it. You a, know, like, listen, you, yeah. It's a large company. You got to have some corridors for decision making. I understand that. But, you know, then common sense needs to kind of activate. And it's like common sense is. There's really no precedent here that we need to be concerned about because how many people are going to retire after 52 years? Let's do something unique and special for this man who gave his life to this company. And so the team said he's a farmer. Let's build a windmill.
1: Get a windmill for him. That's what we did. That concludes our second part of our five-part series with Dennis Schuler. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College business and what it has to offer. And as always, Roll Tide!